Welcome to Season 2, Episode 32 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Zachary Tanner. Zach is the author of Oscar Submergers, and he joins me from his home in Louisiana. Welcome to the show, Zach. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. How's life in your new home in Louisiana? Yeah, it's great. Um, I love it. There's I I we've lived we lived in New Orleans in the city for three years, and then we lived back home in Lafayette in Freetown um for a couple of years. That's actually an interesting neighborhood because it was the um it was one of the first integrated neighborhoods in um Lafayette, even before, um, you know, before the end of the Civil War, like uh, it's it goes back. It's a great community neighborhood. Um, it's right by the college campus and things. Um, but then we moved now here to our new house in Brobridge. So it's been a little bit of a change. It was a lot of like living in the city, cars flying down in front of my house, 40 miles an hour, you know, 15 feet from the front door all the time. Um, so now it's a bit quieter. I can see the stars at night. Um, I've been getting a kick out of the armadillos and mice and snakes and um, spiders, ants, toads, frogs. Um, I, I really like all the animals. It's it's nice. And yeah, my big book, Margin the Atomic Brain, is largely a Louisiana book. So um, it's an inspiring place for me to be writing about uh, Louisiana history because I feel like I'm in I'm, I'm now living in a sort of timeless uh spot that a lot of my characters i'm writing about you know i'm surrounded by cane there's a swamp it's beautiful wildlife it's hot there's vegetation um all kinds of weeds and things grown in the yard to make teas and whatever from um tell us a bit more about that because i'm curious about this whole cajun experience like it's not an america uh that i'm familiar with tell me a bit more about it um it's it's interesting because it's sort of it's become a brand name you know like in the 60s um there was a sort of like cajun whitewashing where um uh, like basically the the white cajuns were sort of like uh we need to assert the the whiteness of being cajun and so they made a flag and they started putting money and books into research about it and it's all very interesting i, I can trace my um family lineage back to france like uh so it's 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 a lot different than like i guess maybe the sort of dislocated um like immigrant ancestry that many americans have that are i i know a lot of people can trace through ellis island or other things but um you know it's it's interesting to be part of this that was like an exodus culture um so it's like i i guess i i bring up all those things when you say the cajun experience because it's it's um Beers and, uh, you know, flags and merchandise and ice coolers and trucks and boats. And um, it's a big commercial thing, too. You know, the the Cajun culture. It's about food and indulgence and the music. Um, 
So I think I feel a little cynically about it sometimes. Like Mardi Gras, for instance, would be the most. Um, I lived in New Orleans for three years too. We do Mardi Gras here. Also, um, there's like Cajun Mardi Gras here too, which is you dress up um, basically in tattered clothing. You make a costume uh, out of fringe materials of cut up old clothing, and then you go around and you do a walking route uh, through someone's neighborhood in the country, and you stop at each house in the capitaine. Uh, who is like someone on a horse will go up to the house and um, ask permission for, you know, to, to frolic in the yard, splash in the mud, like cause some trouble. Uh, and then, and then they release a chicken and everybody chases the chicken. Or there's another one uh, where everybody climbs a pole to get the chicken at the top of the pole. Um, so there's some bizarre, there's bizarre stuff in Cajun culture. There's stuff that makes me uncomfortable. There's like ways that since the sixties, it's had, it's been, um, used to i don't know, suppress and oppress and pressure other things you know out of existence so um i'd say my favorite things about the cajun culture i love the food I, the music's great um i'm a musician too uh i don't know so much cajun music but i really like it there's lots of cajun jams so most of the instruments are um the cajun accordion um, the fiddle uh stand-up bass double bass um uh what else so, i mean those are the main instruments drums bass fiddle accordion washboard um you know and in cajun music i think sounds like a lot of other folk music it's it's really interesting it sets a vibe and um it's fun to dance to i think the food is it's hard for me to travel to other places and be happy with the food i really like the food here um Although I had some great food in Mexico too, but especially other places in the States, I find the food very bland. It's not that all our food's spicy. It's just a lot of it's very rich, you know? Um, so I love to cook. I, I like, I have a lot of dishes from my mom, uncles, aunts, um, other things. I, I like to cook gumbos, uh, fricassees, sauce pecans, um, all kinds of things. And I love to eat fried alligator. That's a, that's a cool thing to try. Alligator or um, frog legs, uh, interesting things. Um, when we were in Peru, we, we ate some cooey, you know, the guinea pig. That was interesting too. Uh, tastes like rabbit. As someone from Louisiana, it's like small. Um, yeah, I, but so yeah, the, not many people know about the Cajun culture really and I I don't it's not it's it's like all cultures always developing and um you you ask anyone you know in Lafayette area or Acadiana um about Cajun culture and you'll get a different response or um I don't know some people are proud of it some people are maybe a little more cynical some people um yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to celebrate my heritage as like, oh, cool. We, have, I mean, my heritage is still one of colonialism. You know, um, even if it was an exodus from Europe, um, uh, the people in my family uh, who came across the ocean from North America like, were slave owners and landowners, and um, that's sort of hard to reckon with. So, I, 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 I don't think I can talk about my heritage or the culture of the town without like 
forefronting um, how explicitly slavery changed. You know, it, it it's it's not like uh, it's just you follow all the roads back to it, and it's of course we're here. You know, like of course um, it's so difficult. Um, for people of color in the South, of course, it's so difficult for queer people in the South. Like, of course, there are so many um, carryovers from the Jim Crow era that, you know, are, uh, it's just bizarre. Um, I, so in writing about Margie, that's been something I've sort of uncovered. It started with like kind of wanting to dig up into my own history again. And then, uh, you know, learning more about Louisiana and, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I love research because it just uh, allows me to dive very ambivalently into things that I find thought-provoking. Well, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but I want to talk about Margie now because I think that uh, obviously it'll work back into our conversation about Louisiana. But that's a book that is in the process of being written. It's an extremely mm-hmm. long book as well. But do yep. you want to tell us a little bit more about where that book's going, what you're up to it? And um, when we can look forward to seeing it. Yeah, the first volume should be out uh, probably January or February. I'm wrapping it up right now. Um, I wrote it 2014 to 2017 originally. It took a few years, um, like nine months of research and planning, nine months of just like writing it eight pages a day because I I knew it was a giant book, but... um, back then I had a lot of misconceptions um, about what was necessary to create a good novel. And I thought industry was, you know, like when I went to creative writing school, it was like, you, you pump stories out, you pump stories out, you pump stories out, you keep sending them to the New York, the New Yorker, you wait for the New Yorker to tell you something, they reject you. You keep sending it to the New Yorker until something gives. Um, So I, I, began writing with this mindset of like, okay, if I want to write something worthwhile, I have to write all this garbage, which is what a lot of people hear when they're starting art, which is true to an extent. Um, But I think also discredits a lot of the fun things you learn when you're just getting started with something. Um, I have a friend who calls it beginner's gains, you know, like in, in, weightlifting or maybe playing an instrument it happens uh you're so enthusiastic initially um you can learn new things like uh, because you're just completely new to it um you can find new ways of doing things no one's ever done before and i'm sort of sad that early on it was so much about industry and about like i was like i got this giant book idea so i'm gonna do eight pages a day add this up that'll be 2000 pages sounds like a good book and so i did it and then put it in a drawer um because i was like it's obviously a long book i'm gonna have to revise this later um while i was writing it i had written oscar submerges so um i sort of became obsessed with finishing oscar first before i went back to margie um so it took a few years i wrote eight drafts of oscar and wanted to get the whole time out of like this like it's a very American mindset that you have to make a lot to get to the good thing that like good things come with a lot of waste and excess, but they don't have to, I don't think. Um, And I'm thankful. I think parenthood was ultimately what helped me sort of develop the more kind of organic creative process I was looking for. Um, 
because you just have uh, you have to learn to go with the flow, you know, and take each day as it comes. Uh, because the children amplify everything. Um, there's less time to work, but what time there is, it's more precious, and you know the emotions are stronger. It's there's higher stakes. Like uh, I did it all slowly. It changed, but when I first was writing Margie, I was like, okay, this is a big multiverse book, and it's about these characters. Let's take, you know, the character development of Russian classics and then just put that into a schlocky 90, 1950s uh, B sci-fi plot, you know, Margie and the Atomic Brain. I had the title first and I was like, okay, so there's gonna be a giant brain monster. And then I was like, now the next step is to try to make believable characters into a, in, a, in a giant brain monster book. So I was like, the only way I can do that is to learn about quantum mechanics. So I started reading about physics and things. And that was like the first nine months I researched. Um, the book wasn't so much about Louisiana at that time. It, that was more of sort of an emergent thing. Um, I, 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 I slowly developed while I was away from Margie, like, oh, maybe I could write this big, cool, historical Louisiana book. And Margie was this giant historical book set in Louisiana. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I just, my research kept pointing more towards home. Um, and so now, you know, fast forward, I met Rick. Rick was like, sure, I'll publish Oscar. He hadn't even read it. He published it to be able to read it um, fully, you know, he read the full thing on the computer, but um, it's it's flattering. He he trusts me enough sometimes where he's like, "That sounds like a book I'd want to read." All right, let's. He's like, "We'll print it, and then I'll assess it." He says, "I will not be arbiter," or he said that once. Um, but so you know, now I have this cool little gig with the press, with the typesetting, the books, and the and the Oscar sold pretty well. It's one of the best sellers. Um of the press like i think it's in the top three um it's a it's like second printing there's a new cover um it hasn't gotten much attention in any way but um so now i'm in a position where like okay i can i once i was getting oscar finished i was like okay i i, I just told rick about margie one day and he said sure um and then from there it's it's been a lot of me reworking my ideas to you know, at first I was like, do we just want one giant book? But then it's just like the feasibility of going over 600 pages. It's just not. And then I was like, okay, do I want eight pocketbooks? And then it's like, is that going to be an $80 book? Um, so uh, like, you know, over how long? I just, I don't know if that would turn off a lot of readers, but, but the thing is that it's like a, it's a multi-volume novel. So the first volume will be out in January or February. And then ultimately there'll be three volumes. So it'll be a trilogy. Um, a trilogy with six major parts. So each one will basically be two novels in one volume. So it'll be like volume one, books one and two, like volume two, books three and four, volume three, books five and six. Um, and I don't know how long it'll be after that. I, I thought I was going to be rewriting and fixing up the whole thing before I released the first book. But I had this revelation one day and I was like, nobody does that. Everybody just writes the series one book at a time. That's preposterous. Why would I need to do that? Um, which was sort of a fun little thing where I was like, okay, well, I guess there's nothing stopping me from picking it up and writing it again today. So I just was excited. It had been four years since this was December, um, a couple months after Oscar was published. And I was like, I guess it's time to start trying to do something else. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick up Margie and the Atomic Brain because I love that book and I need to finish it. Um, so I did. And then I, I had a few months 
working hard on it. Um, then April and May kind of, I was working on a lot of stuff for the press, uh, went on vacation, moved houses on top of the family life and everything. It was just grueling. Um, so I hadn't been touching Margie for a bit, but I did the Broussard work in that time. Um, some work on the Paraplus of Spur Tank Road, um, a couple of the other books, Fatland. And then uh, now I'm finally getting back to Margie now that I've finished that Broussard essay um, for the double dealers. And it's exciting to me again. Um, so right now I'm, I'm finishing the first volume, which is a lot of content that I wrote several years ago, but it's been completely written from scratch. Like with Oscar, I rewrote it from scratch eight times. And then Margie, I'm not going to do that this time. Cause like I said, I've, it's no longer like this illusion of industry is my key to success. You know, it's like, I, 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 I'm more concerned now with just doing it the right way in its own time. I, you know, I used to think like, if I want to write fiction, I, I can't ever put off for tomorrow what I can be done today, you know, taught that kind of thing in school. But uh, I think that's false too. It's, I've learned as I gotten older that, you know, there's less entropy on the overall system of my life and all the complex parts of it. If I can sometimes put off things to when they can be done with less stress. Um, so that's not procrastinating, you know, that's just scheduling and multitasking. So I've, I've learned that more recently and it's been, it's made it easier to jump between projects and books and um, it gives it its own momentum. I really like, uh, I can pick it up and put it down and pick it up and put it down. It was exhausting to used to feel like I had to like write eight pages a day. I was, I had this routine and I had to do it. And if I, someone interrupted it or my schedule was messed up, I was irritable. I'd lose my mind. Uh, I, I have obsessive compulsive disorder and panic disorder. And back then I was unmedicated and hadn't had therapy yet. So it was in 27 years of being untreated with a major anxiety disorder and undiagnosed, but knowing the whole time, that's what I had, uh, Luckily with therapy and medicine, like I've, I've evened out in that way. Um, but for a while there, you know, it was a, a really kind of, uh, this is my time and I got to get my stuff done. Um, but now I'm more like, ah, this is just a blast. I, well, I got to do something else. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can, I can take little breaths in the work and have fun um, for a stretch and the spontaneity of it is as exciting to me as it used to be exciting to know that if I wrote a certain amount of pages every day for a certain amount of months, I would end up with a giant novel. Um, and never thinking that then I would have to revise a giant novel. Um, <laughs> that, that sounds fun to read. So it's like, uh, uh, even like, I love the title still, you know, it's, it's a book I think people would want to, they hear, they would hear about it and, you know, you want to read it or I would, or that's just how I felt about it. Hence why I'm writing it. And uh, so, yeah, that's where I'm at with it right now. I'm wrapping up the first volume. So that's, I just finished some research on um, some extensive research on like uh, the bombing campaigns of World War II. Some of my characters were like, uh, you know, in bombing runs and missions. Um, history was a big fascination for me as a kid. Um, so especially World War II, um, that's less fascinating to me now, but um, the war seems to be a fine setup to make my brain monster, you know, plausible. Um, 
and the science behind war technologies and you know like gravity's rainbow beyond the zero podcast like uh you need gravity's rainbow to make a a giant adenoid work you know uh or uh crawling into the toilet to get your harmonica scene work like uh uh that's something i love about pinchon i think um it's a war book but he's it's like you know in what way really like how could you call it you could you could never reduce it to a single label um i do want to ask you a bit more about chandler brossard because i know you've mm-hmm. obviously you've typeset some of his books and you've written some intros to his books as well um i don't know anything about him do you want to tell me a bit more about him sure um chandler brossard so wrote his first books in the 50s who walk in darkness and um the Bold Saboteurs. The Bold Saboteurs is really good. It's the one I prefer. Um, it's a, but the early books, those two early books, serious kind of literary fiction published in New, in New York, um, but made some, you know, that was the 50s. He was a big character in the Bohemian Greenwich Village scene. And um, his daughter Iris actually told me um, that, you know, there's this duality to his character that's really interesting. Chandler's like a sweetheart. Chandler's also like a a fast talker, a mixer. In the in the review of contemporary fiction, Chandler Broussard number, he's uh, mentioned as stealing dinner rolls off of someone else's table, you know, at a fancy restaurant or like, um, you know, getting into verbal altercations, but apparently he never would start a fight. Um, um, but so it's, it's like this, just this um, aggressive lover sort of, you know, this um, wild, like, ribald, um, writer character but then also this uh, a very sort of like sweet man and father and just someone who's in my opinion was too sensitive to be living in new york all those years um uh so it it just it really appealed to me um so then then he spent five ten years until the early 60s doing um he called him three penny dreadful so lots of crime books um but the bold saboteurs is a crime book but um it it uh, orchestrates or um, dramatizes the schizophrenia more wonderfully than any other book I've ever read. And um, then the next period of Broussard lacks, uh, you know, just the grand vision of the first two, um, which aren't my favorites. And then he writes a series of plays in the early 60s, and he's writing um, what will be printed in the 70s as Did Christ Make Love? Um, the Wolf Leaps. We printed that one, reprinted it. Um, and then by 71, he comes out with Wake Up, We're Almost There. Um, huge book, psychedelic book, grand book. Like, I, I think really, really deserves to be read with a lot of those other big books of the early 70s. Um, it's not, I don't, it's not nearly as pretentious in its style as some of the other ones I like, like The Pinchdown and The Barth and uh, yeah, like The McElroy and stuff. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, What's there, um, I don't know. I was always bored by Hemingway, um, kind of. And, but loved how easy it was to read. Um, but also, I'm not bored by Pinchon, but I'm sometimes perturbed by how difficult it is to read certain sections. Um, or Joyce, you know, like I'm perturbed by all of Finnegan's Wake. I'm like, I had a fun time, 
glancing my eyes through it. But um, I'm glad I got a couple guides now. You know, um, I have this cool annotations to Finnegan's Wake that has page by page, you know, a little diagram of the thing. But, um, you know, uh, of the whole uh, postmodern a contract sort of books, like uh, Chandler's reads like the simpler kind, um, but the sort of sociological themes of Wake Up, We're Almost There or were I think so ahead of their time. And um, yeah, I, I, I just, there's, it's this constant obsession with bleeding in and out of each other socially all the time. And that we're not um, each of us, one person, you know, but we're all of everyone and everyone in between. And uh, you know, so you would think it would have taken off more. I mean, but I guess it's 71, like maybe if wake up we're almost there would have come out in 1968, it could have been a huge book. Um, but by the early seventies, um, those ideas weren't so big, but then Wake Up, We're Almost There um, flopped and a horrible review was written by Anatole Broyard, the critic um, who Broussard had a beef with from Who Walk in Darkness, basing a character off of him. Another character in Who Walk in Darkness is based off of Jack Kerouac. Um, I think, or no, no. No, not Jack Kerouac. William Burroughs might be in there, but uh, William Gaddis is definitely in there. Um, so in his early books, he has some some portraits and uh so he had a beef with briard about um writing this character that was a, a negro passing um to get into the white literary culture and uh briard took it as a personal affront and then they had a feud the rest of their entire careers and then so when wake up came out um briard published uh just a defaming uh review of wake up in um the new york times book review and uh then it was pretty much it was just after that it was it was hard for chandler to get published um the two years later of uh, an educational publisher published did christ make love which we reprinted as the wolf leaps with his title but then after that he's got 20 years of um printing mostly little books like dirty books for little folks uh the chimney sweet comes clean um, postcards, don't you wish you were here? Um, these are all collected in Over the Rainbow, hardly. Um, collected Short Seizures. That's a book uh, Stephen Moore helped put together in the early 2000s. Um, but it's a very interesting period. As after Wake Up, his books get very small, like none much bigger than novella length, and they get very... Um, they're very simply written, but they're very hard to read because of these sort of um, this psychic disjointedness. He called it a psychic double jointedness, um, but it's just voices speaking. And and I uh, I remember reading in an interview he wouldn't plan his novels. You know, it's basically just like improv. Although he rejected the uh, a comparison to jazz, you know, as just being preposterous. Um, but then, and then there's the Chandler Brassard number in the Review of Contemporary Fiction in 1989. Uh, or no, this is 1991, I think. 89, I believe, is when Stephen Moore was going to take pictures and interview him in uh, New York. Um, he died in the early 90s, actually shortly before the printing of As the Wolf Howls at My Door. Um, but yeah, that was his last big book. And it's sort of another big book like Wake Up um that recycles some content from earlier stuff he uh i don't know he's just a, a wonderful iconoclast that was unknown to me was presented to me as sort of this postmodernist but i don't think it's really like that um it's something 
I don't know. I like his humor. I like um, how far he can take my mind with simple language. Um, I it's just funny. I I I laugh more than anything when I'm reading Broussard, and uh, and it feels good to laugh. I feel like I'm laughing with someone. Um, in, in you know in, in a way that that feels good. Uh, he expressed once that he didn't see what people saw in his books, but what I see in his books are, um, I don't know. It helped me through a really rough time. It's, uh, to laugh and persist and go on having a purpose when the world around you, you know, uh, is just set on, banishing having a purpose uh, it's just it's it's a liberated mind uh his his fiction is his own uh you know it's singular um and it's wonderful like dirty books for little folks it's smutty retellings of um fairy tales you know i i love that it's fantastic he's like why should we lie to kids why do we talk down to our children but i'm obviously my kids don't read those books but but still there's also the uh, i just feel like mentioned like the Another kids' books, not for kids' books that I love are uh, Alexander Theroux's The Skinocephalic Waif and uh, The Great Weedle Tragedy. My baby's always pulling them off the shelves. But another interesting, like, kids' books for adults. Um, yeah, that's, I'd say that's how I feel about Chandler. Cool. Okay. Uh, give me one book that I should get by him. Um, I mean, do you have Wake Up? No, I don't have any. Got none. Wake up. We're almost there, I think, is would be a good introduction. Uh, why would you want to read Chandler? But also, I think maybe one of the smaller ones, the one that just came out, The Double Dealers or The Wolf Leaps, is a cool introduction to, um, you know, mid career, very plot driven, interesting, play inspired Shakespearean, you know, stories. Um, but then the two big mammoth novels are sort of just expansive compendiums of his creative thoughts over 20 years each time. Um, so if that's the sort of thing that appeals to you, I'd say either that one or is the wolf house on my door, but also maybe the wolf leaps or the double dealers. Um, if you want to read the, the little interesting books, then, and without having to find all of them, then if you got over the rainbow, hardly, um, that's, a good place to get all the little books and raging joy, sublime violations. So in another sense, um, I think that's the most enigmatic Broussard. I think that's the most difficult Broussard to read and probably the least read Broussard and maybe the most rewarding, but I haven't cracked it open yet. Um, but I, I keep picking them up and looking at them and I read them all. Um, I added a few of them to Goodreads that weren't there, um, like postcards and dirty books for little folks. Um, so I want to hear what other people have to say about them um, because I think they're fantastic, but they're very difficult to understand. I think though, um, yeah, I'd say wake up are the double dealers. Okay, cool. All right. Let's talk about your book that's published, um, Oscar Submerges. On the surface, it's a 500 page space opera set in Europa, but it's much more than that. It's Kind of a bit like Hitchhiker's Guide, but if Sam Delaney had written it. Do you want to tell us a bit more of the setup and your protagonist, Cletus? Yeah, oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that. 
that frame. Um, <laughs> yeah, Cletus is from Luna, so he's from the moon, grew up on the moon. Um, he's finally going to the outer system, going to the Europa, the magical world that's unlike all other worlds in the solar system we know um so it's it's sort of a future history but also i think sort of a i think it's a divergent sort of history to ours it's one of a many parallels in the sort of multiverse thing uh, it's a it's a possible history because it's about a possible character who is cletus it was you know kind of like me early on like i was talking about it has been obsessed with industry and obsessed with becoming a composer and he wants to write operas and he wants to be a genius and all these things it's the classic sort of buildings roman setup um um except you put it in space and he's going to europa which is this magical world of music and drugs and sex beneath the ice um free love and um yeah, a, he's going there to after his the people he's been his mother and grandmother. He's been taking care of them. Um, they pass away. He's been their primary caretaker for seventeen years. So it's his way to sort of get away from a past that has been difficult uh, for him, but then also a place to finally you know grow into his own as an artist. That's what he goes there looking for. Um, and he's like he's going there looking for people to learn to love openly and freely, and then from those experiences obviously he will achieve some sort of you know artistic catharsis or so he thinks um so that's the setup it's it's a music composer going to a new world to embrace a new culture and try to finally self-actualize um so he's, he's got pretty high hopes i think when he sets out for europa um and then i think soon the irony quickly is that He's from a different culture. He can't really hang. Um, these people are not what he expected. They, they're more than what he sees them to be. Uh, he befriends this old friend, Oscar, who's sort of a mentor to everyone, and um, just this wonderful old painter. Uh, my favorite character in the book. Uh, the first character to come to me, I thought of the book at the bottom of a swimming pool, thinking about Oscar at the bottom of a swimming pool, or just standing on the surface of Europa, looking up at the stars. Um, and so... Yeah, Oscar uh, becomes, Cletus wants to leech off of Oscar. You know, he's he's like, I can't learn from my own experiences, even though I've set myself up to do so. Um, luckily, I got Oscar right here. I can just follow, you know, do what Oscar does until these people start to love me. That's not working out either. Um, and then the other element of the book, I think that's worth mentioning is the, the French maids. The original book was French maids of the Conic Mara chaos. So it's a neurodegenerative disorder that Oscar suffers from. Um, so memory is another big theme. Losing memories is a big theme. Um, having best friends who are much older than you is a big theme. Um, it's kind of a buddy book at points. At other points, it's, it's smutty at other points. Um, it might be profound at other times. I think it's just, it could be um, interesting musings on music um, by Cletus, you know, I, and, and I'm very musical. I play a lot of instruments. So um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to get those sections of the book, right? Um, the musical sections. Hmm. Um, before we move on to some books you like and some of the books that inspired you, we were talking before about your journey into writing and I know that we were talking about smut and some smut writing that you've done in the past. Do you want to tell us mm -hmm. a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. Uh, when I was about 20, I, um, I got, I got hooked into the, the big craze at the time was, Hey, write smut for Amazon, you know, support your family writing smut for Amazon. Um, or that's what like I found in these small forums and, uh, I tried to make it work. I was a college student and I was like, well, I need a better job. I'm tired of making pizza. Maybe I could just make a lot of money just sitting in my room all day and trying to work myself up into the erotic fantasies and then turn them into money. But then turns out no one really wanted to read. I wrote as Fifi Mimu. It was a sort of drag persona. Um, and it was the first time I'd written under a pseudonym, but it, that's how I wrote my first novel under this pseudonym. And really under the, the impetus of like, I, I just got to write something that can get people off so they can buy it and I can have, you know, my groceries. I, I was a young kid living on my own for the first time and I wanted to write, um, and I was in school and I, I, I don't know. I was just drawn to what's the first smut book that I really, uh, Irene's cunt is this French book. Condor, right? Um, yeah, I, William Volman references it a few times in, um, the Royal family. Um, there's actually a whole section of it called Irene's cunt. Um, and, it's this old dirty French book that was written anonymously, but it was, that was sort of like a, I know you talk about gateway books often. That was sort of my gateway smut book. And then um, from there, like Henry Miller on East Nin, um, all of them. And then eventually found Marquis de Sade I, as a younger person, didn't really like it, read it again later, thought it was hilarious um, and found that it was something different than what I first thought it was. I started with 120 Days of Sodom, which is just almost all the worst elements of Desaad in one book. Um, it has the least philosophy, the least uh, humanist uh, rants, the least irony, uh, the least novel situations, um, or maybe not. That one's pretty novel situation. You know, the group of libertines determining their own sexual appetites and... Um, enslaving people and like uh elizabeth bathory style um but so that was originally how i it was the first thing i felt capable of writing i i was a young person i was 20 so sex was sort of new to me um and and so it sort of opened my world and uh it was a fun thing i could just f have fun writing about um and then from there I started to realize that the stories weren't working as smut stories because I just kept wanting them to work as stories too. So, you know, there, there was the sex there, but I, the main flow of all the stories was about what was going through the characters' heads. So I, there was a slow transition from trying to write smut for money to writing for myself. And I just can't help but have smutty elements emerge because that's like, what just one of the tenets of my imagination, one of the major you know avenues along which my mind likes to cruise. Cool. Okay. Um, are there some of those books still available out there in the wild? Um. Yes, there are. There are about fifty copies, but mostly friends. I know almost everyone who has one now by name. Probably, I sold it mostly out of the back of a car at bars and um playing music shows. Um. So they're out there, very rare. Fifi Mimu, the end of Adam Dupree. There's still probably some um, short stories on Amazon, like The Doors of Predilection or um, what was the other one? Not an Untimely Elevation. Um, they had some bizarre titles. I would always write the title first. 
uh, mojitos and finger sandwiches is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one. Uh, but the, the book I, I liked, I, it was a novel. And then I self-published it when I was 20, but only printed 50 copies. So those are out there. Um, but as far as that goes, I the only other really thing I've done like it was Tindralopolis, the Vezina Ride Each book at Kronosamas.com. I did some dirty drawings for that book a couple of years ago and had a lot of fun doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, that one and then Raging Joy Sublime Violations are the other ones I've really done any sort of illustrative cartoons for. Um, but those were fun. Cool. All right. Shall we get on to your gateway books? What were some of the books that opened the doors of literature for you? Um, let me think. Slaughterhouse Five. Um, in high school, I had a great uh, English professor introduced to Slaughterhouse Five. Wuthering Heights, around that age too. Um, I really loved Poe as a teenager, but then it was probably when I was around eighteen. I was working a job at some tennis courts um, where I started to have time to read big books and started really liking big books like Infinite Jest. I started reading Volman there. Um, a gateway thing too was just the review of contemporary fiction. Uh, I always wanted to be a cartoonist or a, an animator or a, a graphic novelist kind of. And then randomly, I, I w- just went to the university library one day looking for some sort of periodical um, that would just make me want to read more fiction or like something that looked interesting. So I, I just browsed all the shelves, walked up and down all of those shelves of English literature and then all the different periodicals. And I was like the review of contemporary fiction. That sounds spot on. That sounds like just what I'm looking for. And I opened it up. It was the Jose Donoso issue. Um, but I started going back and reading that more. Um, and so that was a really, a, a, a sort of gateway read too to a lot of my favorite writers um, because I just, I'm so obsessed with a lot of people who especially were covered in the late eighties and early nineties, but then like William Gass, June Barnes, um, Gaddis, uh, Theroux, Brissard, uh, Barth, um, Kathy Acker, Marguerite Young. Uh, it's just, just so many authors I that are some of my favorite authors still and the ones I want to reread and keep rereading. Um, I found in there and it was just, it was, it was wonderful. I just opened the issue and it was like, these, this, it, it just, it felt so, um, right to discover that periodical and then um read them for a few years um so what are some other gateway books though say another one gravity's rainbow beyond the zero podcast gravity's rainbow was a big gateway book as was against the day that's another one i read at the tennis courts you know so if we think about margie writing a a giant book what are some books that made me want to write a giant book miss mcintosh um infinite jest against the day uh those were the Royal family. Um, the seven dream series. Those were a lot of the books I was really into at the time when I was just starting Margie and the atomic brain. And I had just finished reading Proust, which changed my life. Um, I think that was the big sort of catalyst that got me from trying to write smut for money or finding some way to make writing a commodity kind of thing to, I read Proust and then I was like, okay, this is a, it, it, it doesn't have to be so important to me. You know, it can be more organic. The, the less it needs to bring me in money, the more I can just let it be what it has to be. Um, and I think reading Proust was a big transition into maybe some of my more 
finding my more mature priorities as an artist or uh, directions I want my work to go in. Um, Okay. All right. Um, let's move on to the books you're currently reading or you've recently enjoyed or you're looking forward to. Um, what am I reading right now? I'm reading Mansfield Park, which I'm loving. Uh, it's a, I, I, I call it an emo Austin, like persuasion. It's a darker Jane Austen. You know, uh, those books, I think, that were written like later in her life and published later in her life are, are very interesting. Uh, I'm a big Jane Austen fan. I haven't even read all of them yet just for the simple fact of delaying my gratification because I really liked them when I picked them up. But um, I loved Emma. I loved Pride and Prejudice. I loved um, Persuasion. Persuasion was my favorite. It was dark. And Mansfield Park is also dark, I find. Very cynical. I've been reading Austin's letters too. Um, there's some good quotes in there about how uh, as long as she had, uh, you know, uh, changing partners and other people dancing all night long, she could dance just as well for two weeks as for 30 minutes, you know, or, you know, like you, you wouldn't imagine what I would do for a bite of sponge cake or something, just these really uh, human things coming through the letters. I'm a big fan of reading my favorite novelist letters. I was reading, um, uh, what was that? Uh, oh, Flaubert's letters. Yeah. I was reading that side by side uh, Austin's letters too. I love those. Uh, some of the, <laughs> his young letters to his mistress, Louise, I just feel so sorry for Louise <laughs> to have like an angry Flaubert as your lover holding the weight of Western art over your head, just to prove a point about something he said on a carriage ride. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with Flaubert. Um, and I, I'm sorry for her as I read the letters. But then again, I also still love Flaubert's books. And uh, so I'm always fascinated. Gaddis has some great letters too. There's a giant edition the Dalkey Archive did. Um, but I just finished reading Outlander also. That's sort of out of my ballpark, but became a, an obsession of mine and a book I loved, Diana Gabaldon. Um, I still have all the Lord John books to read, which are the spinoffs and side books kind of um which will be perfect books because of what happens at the end of the ninth book to read to get me excited for when the tenth book comes out so that's her giant tin um volume novel you know and so that's i'm working on a three volume novel margie and the atomic brain and uh that one proust the seven dreams um and then a lot of the french romana flus like balzac and uh um Zola, you know, like the grand French novel cycles are stuff that really interests me. Um, I also really enjoyed reading. Um, I really like Frederick Rolf. I'm into Baron Corvo. Uh, and uh, what else do I want to get around to lately? Oh, what's I want to get around to is narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym and then Bottom Stream. I got a copy of that that wow. Rick gave to me and I really want to read. Um, and so that's the things I'm excited about reading, I think. You'll have to give me the review of Bottom's Dream when you get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just enjoy it, like enjoy it without reviewing it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one book I don't want the pressure of having to <laughs> write something coherent about, I I I just picture how would I'm how am I gonna do it? You know, I just set it up on the desk and visit it sometimes. I go visit <laughs> the book. All right, I, I can't bring it to a coffee shop. Uh can hardly carry it across the the, the living room. Uh, 
I think it's one yeah. of those books you're going to have to keep in the lean-to for hurricane season. <laughs> right. I'll use it to hold the boards and all the, the sheet metal down. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Um, which authors, living authors, have carte blanche with you? Hitchhaw, definitely. Volman. I, I, I don't read all that many living authors because, uh, like, one, I, especially now there's just, like, I... It's, there's so much pressure to read everything in the stacks and I, I I like dead authors because they're not pressuring me to read their books at all and if I don't get around to writing something about them I they don't mind um, and I just also I'm interested in timeless literature and a lot of what's printed in North America isn't interesting to me because it all seems very a lot of it often seems similar um, and so it's very rare that I go to buy a book at um, you know, uh, uh, a new bookstore or like living authors. There's, it's, it's rare that I'll get it, but like I'll buy the Alexander Theroux books. I'll buy um, Miranda July's books. I'll buy Miranda July's books in hardback. I'll buy Volman's books in hardback. I'll buy, uh, who else? Yeah, I, there's not too many living. I feel like it's like, mm, I've been reading since, like teenage years early 20s pretty seriously and uh, almost everything i've read was originally because i was trying to get through the classes and things were old books and um i there's this thing you know you read one book and then you find five more in it so it's like i kept getting pointed further and further back in time and back in history um so i've, I've stayed out of touch sort of with um what's really going on um but i don't i is this isn't reading madame bovary again really a bad way to spend a day or um you know i taking my time with austin these are things that feel more important to me i i uh or i don't know they're just what i'm drawn to i uh Early on in my career, I always had all these fantasies about what, 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 you know, what people would say about the work when I'm dead. This is just like this, you know, sort of American writing thing. Like it's about the death and uh, what do you do before then? And it was, it was, it was a, a very, uh, very morbid thing. My my view on writing initially, um, and so that like uh, for some reason having these sort of just morbid obsessions led me to mostly just reading the dead authors um but yeah the last book i loved 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 that had come out in hardback was the lucky star it's uh volman came out with that one in 2020 uh i really really like that book um i don't think it's gotten too many great reviews or i haven't read one that i thought really captured it yet i might write about it someday um but yeah it's uh there's not many of them. <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Zachary Tanner. This episode is brought to you by the Nicki Minaj biography, Wet Ass Pussy, ghostwritten by Joshua Cohen. Comes with a free mop. Available everywhere you get good books. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Zach's Top 10. Uh, 
So we got Moby Dick. We got Moby Dick. I love Moby Dick. I like Melville. Melville's very interesting to me. Um, I don't know if I said this in the interview or before the, that just, I'm really interested in authors who like Melville, Diana Gabaldon, Gabaldon, um, who live full lives before or, or Proust uh, after, during, simultaneously with producing great works, um, doing things like science or, you know, some grand social life or uh, like Melville going out to sea for a long time and then run, writing these wonderful sea books that only could have been written uh, by Melville. But then also like some of his other books, like The Confidence Man is um, an awesome, awesome little book. Um, one of the most difficult books I've ever read. Okay, and then next, I'll recherche du temps perdu. Uh, I love Proust. Proust was such a big uh, turning point for me um, with my perspective of the world and memory and what it meant to be alive and, uh, and persuasion. It's my favorite Jane Austen. It's a dark Jane Austen. Um, normally when you think of Austen, you think of light and fluffy and flower covers and floral prints and wonderful drawing room conversations and tea chats and wonderful walks with dashing men through fields because why ride the horses um but persuasion's not so much like that you know and the mansfield park i'm reading right now too i i i, I like the dark austin is on my top 10 list um next on my top 10 list is laura warholic this is my favorite theroux um have you read that one no i've got it on my I list like to read I think you'd like that one. Uh, just knowing some of the other books you really like, uh, I think you would like Laura Warholic. That one and Dreckenville's Cat were awesome to re read. I finally found them uh, a couple of years ago. But Laura Warholic, I, I read maybe 2019 when my baby was young and I was holding him a lot um, during naps. And then there's the excellent essay in um, Stephen Moore's A Fan's Notes about Laura Warholic. He's got... Um, it's, I just, all I will say is like, if you're interested in that book to read it before or after it opens your eyes about some things. Okay. So what's next? V V one of my favorite pinch-ons um, because we talked a bit just about my first book, uh, Oscar. I, I, I just want to include V as my pinch-on nod because it's just one of the greatest first books ever. And um I just really, really, really like that book. I have the little, uh, the modern library edition with like the purple and blue. It's these primary colors. It's gorgeous. I love those little modern library editions. Um, what's next? The Sotweed Factor by Barth. Probably my favorite Barth. Another one. I have a great paperback edition of it that I really like. That one, like Moby Dick, you know, wonderful. Barth's got the great C novels. Um, another one I really liked was The Last Voyage of Somebody, the Sailor, but I didn't quite like it as much as The Sawweed Factor. Um, I forget, what's the character? Is Ebenezer or something? Uh, mm, yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's got the poet. It's just so fantastic. Uh, one of my favorite characters in all of fiction. It just makes me think of some of the greatest fools, you know, like Don Quixote. Or, uh, I, it's just, that book sticks with me. Like when I think of novel, like The Sawweed Factor, pops as readily into my head as Tristram Shandy or um, Robbily. You know, it's like, it's, it's just so unique um, and surprising. Um, I'd probably say though, my favorite pinch on other than V is Mason and Dixon. I'll just say that. Um, but then Miss McIntosh, my darling. Um, 
I had an essay on this published in George Salas's The Kaleidoscope. It's an essay on Miss Macintosh, my darling. Um, I love that book. I spent some time at Margaret Young's archive a few years ago. We were on a trip to New York as a family. And uh, I was like, well, that's close enough to Connecticut. I'm going to go see Margaret Young's papers. Um, I'm now planning a trip next year to hopefully go visit the Syracuse archive to look at um, some of Broussard's letters and stuff. I'm, I may be working on another book about Broussard, a, a different book, one of my books, like a book on Broussard. Um, mm. But that's still in its infancy. Um, and that'll be... But I'd be going shortly after um, Margie comes out. And then um, JR is another one I've got here. Um, JR is my favorite Gaddis. I think one of the funniest books. I love JR. I think um, it's, it's almost, it's, it's a lot of people probably get turned on to or hear about the recognitions before JR. And I think it's, it's sad because. Uh, I think the recognitions can be a very unforgiving sort of, um, you know, really intense, gloomy book, brooding book. Um, great for like a rainy day in an open window. But um, I, I could bring JR anywhere and just keep reading and just, wow, this is, uh, it takes everything that I usually despise about America and makes it fun to breathe in, you know, as the trash and things just keep piling up around you. Um, and then I guess I could do two speculative fiction books um, because Oscar is speculative. Margie and the Atomic Brain is speculative. Um, Samuel Delaney's Babel 17 was is on my top 10 list. That's a huge influence for Oscar. Um, I just love that book. I, it's uh, Delaney's early science fiction is very interesting to me. I want to find some of his later books because I know he then transitioned out of the speculative fiction like after Dahlgren and all that and largely for most of his career since hasn't been writing it. But um, in terms of what inspired me, Babel 17 was a uh, a big like, oh, so this is like a fun, uh, this is, I it, it's got a very, um, it's unlike any other sci-fi book I've ever read um, in that, it's just so free to be wacky, bizarre, sexy, also convoluted or tricky. Like uh, I love how unapologetically people will speak in poems and in and and uh, you know, like in Delaney's novels, it's fantastic. And then um, what was it? Maybe another speculative one. Uh, would be uh, I'm a big fan of Stanislaw Lim. Um, Solaris would definitely be uh, one of my favorite science fiction books. It's so simply written and so uh, precise, and it's just like a, I could just spin it on the desk and watch it go all day, like a little um, top. Um, I, I I really like that book. Uh, yeah, Solaris. Some of his other good ones are Siberiad. Um, what's the other one I read? Uh, Eden. That was a good one. Stanislaw Lim. Very, very good uh, speculative fiction author. I also really like Octavia Butler. Um, but yeah, so that's my top 10. Moby Dick, Oliver Sherry, Tom Perdue, Persuasion, Laura Warholic, V, The Sotweed Factor, Miss McIntosh, J.R., Babel 17, Solaris. Nice. Very cool. What a good list. 
Yeah, I think I guess they're all English language books except for Proust um, and Solaris. But English and Solaris, yeah. But English language books are what I mostly read. Um, although I love reading the classics from other languages and things, and I, I can read a little bit of Spanish, but I'm practicing. Cool. All right. Well, we should probably wrap it up. Um, cool. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you. But before we go, do you want to tell us where we can buy? Oscar and where we can expect to buy Margie and yes um, you can buy catch up with you online yeah you can buy Oscar um at the coronasamas.website, website coronasamas.com it was actually my wife's brilliant idea to put a shopping cart on there um anyone who's bought books from coronasamas.knows knows that for the first two years of the press you had to Go individually through Rick and email Rick and interact with Rick to get any of the books. Now you don't have to interact with Rick at all. Um, even though I, I, why would you not want to? I interact with Rick every day and it pleases me. Um, but now you can just go to the website and order it on the shopping cart. And then about seven months, uh, January, February, Margie and the Atomic Brain will also be available there. And it's also where you can find uh, the Chandler Broussard reprints with my introductions, um, the cover designs I've done, and quite a long list of the books I've typeset for the press, too. Um, so since 2020, basically, all of my literary stuff has mostly filtered through Corona Samoset, or my work has filtered through it. Um, so anything with my name on it, you can find there. And um, to follow me and find out what it is that is there to be found you can go to my website which is um zachary tanner bibliophile.art.blog um let me double check that yeah zachary tanner bibliophile.art.blog which is my just writing blog i'm gonna start doing some blog posts about about wrapping up margie and revising it revising this 2000 page manuscript into three 600 page um novels and also, I'm pretty active on Instagram as Piebald Puff Puff. Piebald, Piebald underscore Puff Puff. Um, yep, that's it. So that's where I'm active. And that's where I post what I'm working on. It's where I post um, pictures of my kids interacting with the books. Um, stuff we're doing around the house, which we love. It's, it's been nice to settle into this. Cool. All right. I will let you go. It's been so much fun talking to you. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Thank you. I'll, I'll see you next time. Thanks once again to Zachary Tanner. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. We'll be back with you next episode next week. Bye.